Welcome to Resilient Forward, a podcast created by Baguette Group to educate the public and promote solutions to Florida's most challenging environmental issues. I'm your host, Irela Baguette. I've been a longtime advocate of the environment and the economy. I invite you to join me every week as we showcase resilient solutions, feature innovative strategies, products, and services from prominent members of the business community, including industry leaders, advocates, and elected officials all engaged in developing and implementing resilient solutions in their community. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Greg Hamra. Greg is one of the most dedicated climate advocates that I know, and he is a leader for the Citizen Climate Lobby and he's an adjunct faculty member at the University of Miami teaching green building, lead certification, and a number of other things. Uh, but more importantly, welcome Greg, and tell me a little bit about how you became a climate advocate. Thanks, Aurela. In fact, what you mentioned, the green building, it was, I guess, my first professional step into this. Uh, I've always, you know, born and raised in Miami, and I've always been in, interested in uh, waste reduction, and I just, hardwired. Maybe it came from grandpa, who was a, a product of the 20s and the depression. And, uh, and I learned just really how to be a frugal, really. And to me, that, that was uh, not opposite from having a good, fulfilled life. But anyway, uh, it's always something that's been interesting to me. And I, I've paid attention to this since really a, a very young age. I paid attention 30 years ago when Dr. James Hansen famously testified before Congress. I watched that. Um, now I'm on an organization in an organization where he's on the board. But I, I moved to India for four years, and I watched the movie, of course, An Inconvenient Truth, which of course was very um, influential to many people. In fact, many professional sustainability people grew up out of out of that. And uh, when we came back, my wife and I um, took a lead class, the the Green Building Standard. And, and what is that exactly yeah, for? Lead, Those I don't know. Right, lead is the preeminent. Green Building Standard, and in fact, LEED, L-E-E-D, is the biggest brand in the world of sustainability. Some people actually ascribe it to things that cannot be LEED certified, uh, like LEED certified bricks, no such thing, but I know you mean green. It's sort of a proxy for green. Right. Um, and, and so it's the preeminent Green Building Standard. There are LEED certified buildings in over 150 countries around the world. Empire State Building is LEED certified. It wasn't built as a LEED certified building, but it got certified for operations and maintenance. So it was retrofitted. That's right. That's precisely right. So uh, the lead started out for new construction. So this is, see, I used to teach this stuff. I really moved upstream a bit, if you will, from lead green building education. Uh, I found I wasn't moving the needle enough. But I was hired by the, the company that we took a course from in Washington, D.C. Uh, in 2008. Just, wow, I can't believe, 10 years ago. Almost, coming up on 10 years ago. And uh, they hired me. I was their first hire. And uh, since then, I've trained thousands of people on five continents, uh, thousands of people here in South Florida, including the, the, um, the, the people at the University of Miami, the design and construction staff, uh, Miami-Dade County people. And you've trained like Fortune 500 companies, right? Oh, yeah, sure. I've trained some fa world-famous architects here. Uh, I like to say that Bernardo Fort Brescia is one of my victims. And developers too, because people think that you know, you know, we're in Miami, we're ground zero for sea level rise and yep. a number of you know climate challenges, but you know we do have a number of green buildings here yep. that are pretty significant. And yep. You probably were part of that too. 
Well, I, I was part of really teaching the people that built, designed and built them and are using these buildings, the facility managers, the operation and maintenance of a building is arguably more important than building the green building. So real quick, you know, you, uh, you could build a green building and that not operate it in a green way and you're not going to get the green benefits of it. That's right, because as we know, the built environment is a big producer of CO2 emissions. It is actually a lot of people, it surprises a lot of people, <laughs> it's the biggest. Transportation all in all is third, number three. Overall. Really? Yeah, the built environment is like 44%. And it's number one, yeah. And that's attributed to what, for okay. example? That's the thing. That's a, People don't connect the dots right away. You figure, oh, it's a building. It's sitting there. Well, for one thing, the operation of the building, you have power made at power plants that are not at the building site, but those, that power is being generated somewhere else. Uh, and so for the cooling, the heating, the weatherization of the building matters, the lighting of the building. Plug load is big today, by the way, you know, with all the gadgets people have. Right. That's a bigger footprint than it used to be back in the day when we didn't have all these gadgets. And so buildings are, are, are huge. And then when you talk about the embedded carbon of the materials, steel, concrete, hmm, these are high carbon materials, right? So I, I once heard that the, in, the, the carbon footprint of all the materials that goes into the building with the shipping of the building is greater than the entire building usage for the life of most buildings. I was floored when I heard that and I didn't believe it. And I talked to a guy that was responsible for the LCAs or the life cycle assessments of this and they confirmed for me this is true. You think about the embedded, we, most people don't think about embedded carbon. Embedded uh, carbon, right. wow. Yeah, Two thirds don't. of our footprint is in the stuff we buy. One third roughly is in the direct emissions of direct fuel, uh, your power bill for your car and your house. That's not, everybody thinks it's the car, the car, the car. It is for some, but really it's more in the things we buy. Wow. Well, you know, I mean, that probably got you more motivated and more engaged to join the, the you know, the climate lobby, yes. which is what you what you do a lot now. You yeah. do a lot of advocacy mm -hmm. in the nation's capital, um, you know, educating elected officials and, and folks and trying to really move policy in a, I guess, greener direction. Mm. Okay. <laughs> sure. I'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> I, Talk to me about some of the work um, that you guys have been doing, and, and you know, I'm, I'm assuming that you're you're working with um, members of Congress and, and, and members of the Senate, you know, to really one to educate them, and and second to actually craft policy um, that can take us, you know, to actually a more sustainable future. Yes. So, well, Citizens Climate Lobby uh, was actually born about ten years ago when our founder. Um, actually saw the same film. He watched it three more times in the same week and he realized he had to do something bigger and more important. And uh, the organization has gone through a number of migrations and what we targeted and finally realized before I came on about four years ago that we really needed to laser focus. Once you learn, it's like I had to learn. I got into green building. Then I started teaching corporate sustainability. And I kept moving, because I knew that green building was a subset of corporate sustainability, drop in the bucket. And now I'm coming to know that even corporate sustainability or city sustainability is a drop in the bucket in the in the scope of the, really the, when you look at the scope of the climate challenge, if you will, uh, many people underestimate the size of it. And so I realized, as the more I learned, the more I realized how little I was doing and I needed to move upstream. And so we are really on the front lines. We are, we, it doesn't matter how much you know or how much you care, it matters what you do. But then many people are involved in easy stuff. I like to say, well, they're involved in feel-good half measures and doing less bad. Many of us start by recycling. Many of us then move on to changing our light bulbs. Well, it's not enough to change our light bulbs. We have to change our leaders and our laws. We have to change the rules of the game. And the more I've learned about economics, I've sort of become a bit of an economist. I've had to. 
and CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby, is a uh, international nonprofit organization that educates members of Congress here in the U.S., members of Parliament in Canada, and we're all over the world. I mean, we're in, we have chapters in Madagascar, but Australia, all over the world. And our most recent lobby day in June is the big lobby day. We had uh, volunteers, 1,300 volunteers from all 50 states in over 500 meetings with members of Congress, 507 to be exact. We meet with the House, we meet with the Senate. We do this a couple times a year. We have our Congressional Education Lobby Day coming up in November where we report back the findings of what were the questions, what were the concerns. It's interesting how the members of Congress have evolved. It used to be looking at their clock, when's it over? Right. Now they're asking specific questions like, hmm, how does the dividend work? <laughs> right, because we promote a particular carbon pricing plan that has a full dividend to every American household. And so they wanna, they're asking more pointed details. And it's very interesting to hear their evolution on this. And do you think they're asking more pointed details because clearly the climate is changing and the, and the evidence is by, just look at what just recently happened with, these, mm. with this hurricane season and, and, and what happened to the panhandle here in, in, in the state of Florida. Yeah. And so we're starting to, you know, every year there's bigger and worse hurricanes yes. and extreme weather events. Sure. And, you know, again, we see level rise and heat waves and, yes. you, you know, fires and we can go yes. on and on. So and the, this is not uh, an isolated um, problem right. to Miami. It's becoming so it's, more it's and becoming, more evident everywhere. right? Exactly. And so I think that maybe that's the reason why maybe you're getting some of these questions and they're, they seem a little bit more interested in climate and science now than before. It's not so much. You know, a lot of people do conflate this with science. We don't have a science problem. We really don't. We have a political will problem. It's also a social justice problem, an economic problem. It's not a science problem. And that, that's a problem is, is uh, th this whole issue sort of gets ghettoized as a science problem when it really is a political problem. Now, it is a political issue and it should be. It's a business issue. Uh, it also gets politicized, which is true and it shouldn't be because physics <laughs> tide gauges, thermometers. There's no such thing as a Republican thermometer or a liberal, you know, tide gauge. It's just physics. Um, uh, so the answer is really no. They're not more interested in the science. Here's what they're interested in. What their brethren are doing. They're asking questions. The number one question they're asking about is that caucus, that bipartisan climate solutions caucus, which is up to 90 people now, half Democrat, half, half Republican. And let me say it another way. I'm talking about a, a working group with 45 Dems and 45 Republicans that joined a working group with the word climate in it. So one thing we've done is we've made it safe for Republicans to talk about climate. Does not mean they're on the same page with all the same policies, solutions? No, far from it. And it's unfortunate that you're saying that you made it safe, like there was some kind of horrible danger to a yep. Republican speaking about climate. There was, and it you was know, political. And, and they have a political gun to their head. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> there was a danger. <laughs> I know that, I know that. And yeah. tr trust me, you're talking to one of those Republicans <laughs> that, that has never had a problem talking about right. you know, climate issues. But, um, and, and the reason why we started this podcast, because we want to talk about solutions. Yeah. And yep. the Climate Caucus Solution, it's, 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 it's a Climate Solutions Caucus. That's the name of it, correct? Well, yeah, that's simply a working group. It's a caucus. They should be talking about solutions. They're not on the same page with the solution we want them <laughs> to and, promote. And, and what would that be? What okay. solution is that? Talk to me. That solution is, it's a very simple really simple solution for which there's a lot of precedent in conservative economic principles throughout the ages. Um, we call it a carbon fee and dividend. The fact is uh, there is a cost to our use of fossil fuels that's not represented in the price. 
in any economist, left, right, or central, or center, uh, they call it, there's a technical term for this, they call it an externality, where the true cost is not reflected in the price. Some call it a market failure, others call it theft. They said pollution is theft. And it is a form of theft. If I take my garbage and throw it over the wall and make you pay for it, it's a form of theft right. if you're paying for my garbage, right? Well, here we're treating the atmosphere as an open sewer for free. Uh, tons of, uh, all kinds of pollutants, really. And really, the fact is, the price that we pay does not reflect the true cost. So the question is, how do we fix this um, accounting error of the age? I call it the accounting error that's killing the planet, or the accounting error... Um, the biggest accounting error in the history of accounting of, of humans, <laughs> it really is. Uh, and, and, and so I'll put it this way, fossil fuels get to privatize their profits, but they socialize the costs. We pay for the costs. Increased a co half a billion dollars in Miami Beach alone to raise roads and sidewalks and seawalls and put in pumps. That's, that's right. a cost. And that's just a Band-Aid, right? That's just buying us a little bit of time, and it even comes with unintended consequences, a whole different discussion. But then crop loss, sea level rise, a bigger military. These are costs that are not reflected directly in the price. And if we make things direct, prices should tell the truth, right? Think about tobacco a few years ago. The price of tobacco didn't tell the truth about tobacco, what's good or bad for us. Today, it's much higher priced. It tells more the truth of what's good or bad. And so as a result, fewer people take up smoking. It's Correct. more expensive at work. Now, some people call that a syntax and it was rather punitive. To do this with carbon emissions, this is scary because we're talking about a big issue and I understand the concerns by those who don't want to see big government and crushing regulations uh, and have a fear of uh, policy implications that for fear that anything we do must take away my freedom, change my way of life and make me poor. That really is the deep down policy anxiety or anxiety that some people have and so they argue science that they know very little about <laughs> and make up uh, sort of, I call it a, a shiny object or a smoke screen to talk about that there's the debate is still out or something, we've known about this over 100 years, to really hide the fact that these are the deeper implications. And the sooner we understand that's really the problem for some people. Um, let's be honest, the conservatives who have a, a, a worldview that bigger, more government, bigger government is badder government, right? More regulations are bad and taking away my freedoms is bad and so, bad, and so is picking winners and losers through an un, unfair patchwork of subsidies. I get that. The only difference between the left and the right on this issue is the left is more willing to accept that, but they're both wrong. Because regulations is not the way we will ever fix this. Of course not, and it just regulations just creates more layers of more delays of the, of the issue. It's administratively <laughs> burdensome, it's costly, but it will never, it couldn't, there's no way a regulation could affect what's going on in Cambodia, but, Vietnam, or India. But we're not talking about, you know, regulations here. We're talking more about the individual's responsibility. It, it's kind of like, mm. it kind of, Levels the playing field, so to speak, on, on everyone's price for on, on carbon it, emissions. It does right? make the price I, honest. I, I create carbon. You yes. create carbon. Yeah. Everything yeah. creates carbon. So right. therefore, you know, we can't we can't like single out one industry over another. Right. This has to be a fair fair approach. Right. So so what happens is because we put the price at the most upstream point of extraction, that price enters the economy at the most upstream point. And what I mean is at the wellhead, at the mine, and at the port of entry. Now, what that's going to do is it filters through the economic food chain. It's going to raise the prices of things you and I buy. So it's not a tax that you and I incur directly, but we're going to see your gallon of gas goes up, gasoline, your half gallon of almond milk goes up, right? Things go up. Now, if you're a local farmer, 
nothing would help local farmers better than something like this because you're going to want to buy locally more. But what do we do with the money is the question we should be really discussing. Our plan suggests that we return it 100% to every American household. We call it a carbon fee and dividend. And in fact, this would enrich the lower 66 to 70% of households because everybody gets the same size. But those who are, let's face it, those who are more affluent have a bigger carbon footprint. Okay. Footprint is tied to affluence. And if you give more money to people at the bottom, not only are we protecting them and all of society from the increased prices, they spend it. So if we're paying more for some products, yeah. okay, but I'm getting a return, how does that break it down for me? Okay. As a Price, Prices yeah. of things are going to go up. Mm -hmm. If an affluent person has three houses, <laughs> eats higher on the hog and has four Hummers and a spaceship or whatever, a helicopter, they're going to spend a lot more to maintain those as the price of fuel, both direct and embedded, right? Things they buy go up. Maybe they got a, maybe they get a new smartphone a couple times a year where me, I buy my pre-owned one and I'm still struggling with the brick <laughs> and screen, right? Um, my point is this, people that are, carbon emissions are not based on ideology and how you vote. They're based on how much you buy. Right. And people that are affluent buy more stuff and people who are less affluent buy less stuff. And so necessarily they uh, have a lower carbon footprint. If everybody gets back the same check from the money collected, and by the way, this tax or fee starts very low. We call it a fee, you know why? Secretary George Schultz, Republican icon, who's on our board says, you shouldn't call it a tax if the government doesn't keep it. This is revenue neutral. True. It doesn't grow government. It goes into a fund that the money is then dispersed, and it goes up slowly every year predictably, by the way, business loves predictability. But the money comes back in a check. If the lower 70% or 66%, whatever the percentiles is, I forget the exact numbers, gets a check, same size as Bill Gates and same size as your family and mine. But they're going to be in the black more because they have a lower carbon footprint in the first place. Now, everybody, rich, middle, and poor, is going to be more incentivized to have a lower carbon footprint and to make more decisions that, I would say, more decisions tied really to the truth of the cost of those decisions. Everybody across the board. Now, if you're ultra rich and it doesn't affect you, some people complain, oh, well, they're not going to change anything. Okay, the upper 0.1%, fine. Well, but most of society, but businesses will make these changes. And you're creating an incentive program for low carbon decision making, both in corporate, everybody from the homemaker to the hobbyist to the small business owner to the market actor is now going to be incentivized to make low carbon choices. And what would these low carbon choices be? Give okay. me an example ah, from, from, from the good. corporate level yes. to the actual individual Very household. Very good. All the things we've been talking about for years. We talk about green power, energy, uh, clean energy, electric vehicles, uh, local food versus the blueberries that flew in from New Zealand. Huh? Right. Okay. All right. Uh, they, they look and taste the same. We get, we get tomatoes 12 months out of the year, right? Why? Because cheap fossil fuel. Here's, here's a decision. This is a big one. This one floors a lot of people. Do you know that fish caught off of our shores and chickens grown in our states, maybe in North Carolina, go around the world, they go to China to be processed, to be filleted and deboned, and they come back here to your grocery store? Did oh you know that? God. That's embedded carbon, my dear. And what makes that possible? Two things. Cheap labor, so it's a labor cost arbitrage, and cheap fossil fuel. It's cheap enough to do that. People are usually floored when they hear that their fish caught here off our shores, that ends up in their grocery store, went to China to be deboned and filleted. Cheap fossil fuel makes that possible. That's crazy. And still the chicken is cheap to eat. Exactly. That's awful. Right. So it would change 
those kinds of, you want to bring jobs back home? Huh, that, that's one thing that would do it. Now, China, by the way, a lot of people ask, what about China? Of course, and other countries, but China's the big one, right? Look around this room, tell me what's not made in China, good luck. <laughs> right. uh, they're already pricing carbon in seven regions. 70 jurisdictions around the world, 30 or 40 countries are already pricing carbon in one form, whether it's an emissions trading system or a straight tax or fee, which is more transparent, predictable, and much less overhead than the emissions trading. That's complicated. And they didn't leave the Paris comp compact. No, no, they didn't. But we no. did. And so talk to me about, does that, for the United States leaving the, the Paris Agreement on climate, how did that, how does that affect your work in, uh, in the states, in the, in the nation's capital when you're lobbying on, on for You might think it policies? has a big effect. I'm guessing by your question, it has a big effect. I'll tell you, honestly, it doesn't. And here's why. Let's explain, I'd like to explain what the Paris Accord is and what it's not. It is a target, it is an aspiration, it's a worthy aspiration, and it is some commitments by countries to say we're gonna, yeah, I'll do this. Like, I pledge to run this marathon or give you $50 if you run the marathon. It's a pledge. It's not a mechanism, it's an aspirational target, it's not a mechanism. And it lacks the mechanism we are talking about, which every economist, multiple businesses, I mean, Google, Microsoft, Disney, ExxonMobil, Exxon and a number of other oil majors all advocate for a price on carbon. It's good for their business. That floors a lot of people. And they want, that's the mechanism. And so the Paris Agreement or Accord is A, just an agreement. It's not a mechanism. That guy that I heard 30 years ago, Dr. James Hansen, he, he has called it a bit of a sham because he realizes it was a bit, what's a, a diplomatic word for me to use here? Sort of waste of time, I'll say. Uh, he doesn't, he's a little bit more diplomatic about that now, and he has put this in context, and I'll share the audio with you later if you wanna hear it, but it was on an interview last year on NPR when it was about how we have to take carbon out of the sky, direct air capture, and then somebody asked about par Paris, and he put it into perspective, and I'll share that with you later. It, it simply, um, it's not aggressive nearly enough as it should be, and it's not a mechanism to get there. What we are proposing, and a number of other groups, we're not alone, there are a number of other carbon pricing plans on the table in America alone, and a number of statewide carbon pricing initiatives. That's how you get there. And if we don't do this, all of the solutions, you asked me about wind and solar, weatherization, green buildings, different procurement choices, they would never ramp up and widespread adoption of all those solutions will never take reach the scale they need to. We need to go big, we need to go fast. And it, we're not talking about U.S. warming. Let's remember it's called global warming. Hmm? Right. So it's not a South Miami plan, it's not a Florida plan, and it's not a USA plan. And if we get this right, and it, and it encourages other nations to follow suit through the what about China answer is called a border tariff adjustment, which compels other, encourages other nations to follow suit. I won't get too wonky with you, but that's the third part. The fee, or the, the fee is one part, the dividend is the other, and the border tariff adjustment, those are your three legs to it. This encourages other nations to follow suit. It also levels the playing field for you and me. If we make this recorder here mm -hmm. in the U.S., Irela and Greg's Made in the USA Electronics, go figure, just imagine that. <laughs> Imaginate. Hmm? We would be at an economic disadvantage competing with China and Japan, right? By the way, Japan has the stuff made in China, <laughs> just go. like our fish, mm -hmm. uh, uh, because it's cheaper there. But we'd be at economic disadvantage. That border tariff adjustment places a tariff on that imported good from China or other countries based on the carbon content. This serves three purposes. It levels the playing field for you and me. Our, we're made in USA 
goods. It also discourages us from up and leaving and outsourcing our pollution, ah. which happens. And number three, it encourages other nations to follow suit. And that is how this has international reach. Any plan for it to be effective must, there are a number of keys to make it effective, and I, I'll simplify it here. It must be global, systemic, again, that carbon price or tax or fee is assessed at the most upstream point of extraction in the US. Uh, it must be durable. You know what it takes to be durable, my dear? Bipartisan buy-in. Let me explain what not durable is. A plan that is introduced by the Dems and it's scratched out by the Republicans in the next administration. And we're going to have this, we've had the constant oh. whipsaw. That's one reason why, uh, why uh, this constant ping pong game, regulatory ping pong, doesn't work. Is, you know, the conservatives come in, they do away with uh, protections. The Dems come in, they and then you have the subsidies back and forth. It's that a doesn't political seesaw, is what it is. Exactly. I say regulatory ping pong. It's a political seesaw. We need that is this is not how you address a global systemic crisis. We need something with holding power, with staying power. It has to be durable. And the only thing that's going to make it durable, one multiple steps require are required to make it durable. Bipartisan buy-in is a must. Number two, our dividend helps make it durable, because who's going to run on a plank? Of, I'm going to take that check away from you in a couple of years. Good luck with that. Right. So it increases the durability in addition to adding more jobs to the to to society, to the economy. Those people that spend that money, right? If you get that check, you may not need another pair of jeans. You may not need another car. Maybe your house is already weatherized, or maybe you put some solar panels on your house now with that extra money. Um, but or maybe you break even, or maybe you come out in the red because your footprint is so big that the check doesn't quite make you whole, but you could weather the storm. Somebody at the bottom end, right, who the greater proportion of their income is carbon, is energy, both food and, right, they're adversely affected by these costs. And that's why bringing the money back to them is not only protecting them and good for them, it's good for all of us. Because when they spend the money, I say to the president of Walmart, who by the way is on board with this, Chairman of Walmart, Walmart is on board. Would you like your customers to have more money in your in their pockets that walk into the store? Hell yeah! This is what it would do, and that's why 2.8 million jobs would be created in 20 years through our plan. So there you have it. That's why I always say the environment is the economy. Especially right. So in basically, what you're saying, what we need, and just to kind of wrap up, what we need is educating mm. our elected officials mm -hmm. on both sides of the aisle, yes, and incentivizing. Yes. The public with yes. this and decision made and decision made yeah. obviously B business leaders and policy well yes. they're part of the public so yes. you know yeah. so if there's education and incentives yeah. create solutions to yes. a lot of our pressing environmental challenges yes. you pick one and that solves it but our most pressing challenge is you know our carbon footprint continues to you know right. get bigger and bigger and we don't have a whole lot of time no and if we do this then it unleashes all those solutions. So I want to make that distinction real clear. All the solutions you talked about, whether it's clean energy, electric vehicles, or whether it's like, you know, getting a green building, all those solutions skyrocket. But they have, they have continually, decade and decade, struggled to scale up, right? It's a frustration for people like you and me who, who wonder, why, why don't we see the buy-in? There is a fundamental barrier to the widespread adoption of all of these low-carbon solutions. It makes no financial sense without a price on carbon because there's an unfair advantage. Fossil fuels enjoy the biggest free lunch in the history of our species. Until we fix the biggest accounting error in the history of our species, 
we will never see the type of widespread and global proliferation of green, green to use that word, or just low carbon solutions that we need to see. So we have, this is the solution multiplier. And if we don't, if we continue to ignore that, we're gonna continue to play whack-a-mole with, oh, look at the building over there, it's got a <laughs> solar panel, and celebrate the exceptions, and we do not, we fail in the climate fix. But we're gonna keep it positive because we're gonna continue doing this work. Yes. We're gonna continue the education. And, and the more and more bipartisan uh, members that come together in this caucus to really create this policy that will mm. in, in, initially create all these solutions and fund these solutions. Um, yes, it could do that too. Yeah. Directly or indirectly. Those, or indirectly. Are, the, those are the debates we should you know, be whether, having. Yeah, you know, right? however we do it, we all know right. that we right. need to start solving these problems and we need to start paying for them. Yeah. Now, the caucus is not on the same page here with, the, with pricing carbon, right? They need an education, really. Well, and I think they're, they're on their way. So, you know, the, yeah. you know, you keep going to D.C. and so will I. Yeah. And um, keep doing the work that we're doing. But thank you for joining us. And, Thanks for having um, me. Keep, keep up the great work. Thank you for your support, and thank you for asking all these wonderful questions, Arella. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Resilient Forward. You can listen to other podcasts at resilientforward.com and follow us on Twitter at ResilientFWD. If you're interested in sponsoring our show or know someone who we should feature, please contact us. Remember, our environment is our economy.